Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and, of course, the rest of the world. And, as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'll reflect on... um, Uh, some of the waves that have surfaced since uh, the Jeremy Hunt autumn statement, uh, specifically uh, posing the question, are we beginning to see the end of the hard Brexit as negotiated by Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson? Just that question, are we beginning to see the end? There are signs. Um, But I'll be exploring them uh, in a moment. Some brilliant questions from all of you. I got some more questions, and they were great questions on electoral reform, but I've just put them in a file called electoral reform. Thank you for carrying on writing about it. Um, But I think, uh, you know, time to have a break from that and move on, uh, if that's okay with all of you, he says nervously. And so we got some other questions. And for those of you who want to join in and raise points and pose questions, I hope you know the address by now, but I'm going to put it at the beginning. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. And don't forget, we're getting together live for two events in uh, December. The Rock and Roll Politics Christmas Special, live at King's Place on Monday, December the 5th. And Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, live for the first time. It's historic. The Old Market Theatre in Brighton. Actually, it's the following Monday, December the 12th, for a Christmas special. I'm going to structure it around where we were when I did the Christmas special a year ago, which was uh, Boris Johnson dressed up as a police officer in the early hours in Liverpool, a week which ended up with him being accused of breaking the law over Partygate. And somehow how that really, you could see what, almost see, not wholly see, because nothing's clear in politics, how that kind of image has led to three prime ministers, four chancellors, five education secretaries in 2022. And we're all going to look together into 2023, where the Sunak era is starting to take shape. So yeah, tickets uh, on the websites. I'll put the link on the blurb for this podcast. Come along. Nice bars open at the end. Be very festive and fun. It'll be more fun than a pantomime. That's my pledge to you. And um, uh, yeah, oh yeah, the King's Place one is streaming live too. Anyway, Wasn't it interesting when after that depressing, frankly, autumn statement, depressing uh, not so much for the policy announcements, though there was nothing exciting in them, there was no pretense that they were, but the general gloom, the outlook for economic growth, the public spending constraints that will be imposed now, but more rigidly, in theory anyway, from 2024 post-election onwards. No hope, no great use of the state as an engine of growth, just damage limitation, trying to stabilise things after the trust Quateng experiment. Shall we call it that? And and that's really it, traps for labour. So we enter this sort of deeply gloomy dance. It started already where 
people like Martha Carney on the Today programme uh, look at the spending projections now for post the general election late in 2024 and say, are you going to stick to them? If not, haven't you got a black hole? I, this phrase, black hole, it's going to become like the deficit. So how do you fill the black? What taxes will you put up to fill the black hole? As if what uh, is being projected for late 2024, 2025, 2026, is reliable on any level. And remember, Ken Clark, when he set the spending limits in the run-up to 97, said subsequently he had no intention of keeping to them because they were eye-wateringly tight. But this game has already started Martha Carney asked Rachel Reeves but then won't you have a black hole in 2025 and don't you have to scrap your plans for the so-called green revolution because you won't have the money if you you know I'm pleased Rachel Reeves says there must be hope for the future as well as all this sort of politics as a form of accountancy but anyway in the context of finding some route towards economic growth The Sunday Times reported the government or sources within the government have said they might be looking for a Swiss-style arrangement with the European Union, which would allow access to the single market, as well as an obligation, therefore, to comply with some of the rules and regulations of the single market. And it was preceded by Jeremy Hunt's post-interview, post-autumn statement interview on the Today programme when he said he hoped that barriers uh, with the European Union could be removed through grown-up negotiation over the coming years. Blockages to free trade are not a good thing. Anyway, that was one seed, but it was only one seed really being sown, which kind of raises questions uh, for the first time within government about the wisdom of the Johnson Lord Frosty Frost approach to the uh, withdrawal agreement that Frosty hailed and has since disowned for different reasons. There are others, actually. Labour dare to mention it every now and again. Uh, Keir Starmer is still too timid and scared to raise it at Prime Minister's questions, but uh, he raised it in his party conference speech and uh, Rachel Reeves addressed it uh, when asked about it in interviews when, which she gave after the post-Hunt uh, statement. Did so robustly in tone in sort of acknowledging that, I think she calls them the holes, that's one way of putting it, in the Brexit deal negotiated by that mediocre courtier, the unelected Lord Frosty Frost. Other seeds are that the BBC are now raising it in interviews. It's quite interesting that some presenters dare to say, is the Brexit negotiated by Johnson and Frost a cause for the fact that Britain is uh, Britain's economy is so sluggish compared with the uh, rest of the G7, rest of the European Union and so on? Whereas before it was completely taboo, uh, kind of, it, it happens by osmosis at the BBC, there's no kind of direct lines of responsibility and accountability, but kind of a sense went out that the people had spoken, BBC must reflect better the views of the people, and not really uh, go on about Brexit any 
longer. But they are doing now because it's hard to avoid. And if you listen back to the world this weekend from last Sunday, they dared to interview somebody, a business person who had voted for Brexit and now says he regrets it. Uh, As the interviewer said, why the heck did you do it, given that what he had to do was move his firm or part of it to Holland to continue trading with Europe? You know, and meanwhile, we've got the whole issue of Northern Ireland. Uh, Rishi Sunak is a far more convivial figure as a leader, and he wants to get on well with Biden. I mean, obviously, Johnson did. I mean, trust was all over the place. But Sunak, clearly at this early stage of his leadership, believes warm words can kind of move mountains, to use that cliche. Uh, But he had a good conversation with Biden. Biden told him of his concerns about the threat to the Good Friday Agreement of Britain unilaterally reneging on the protocol. And Sunak will be aware of that. And I believe it is true that when, as Chancellor, uh, Sunak uh, was very clear to Johnson that there should not be a war with the EU over the protocol, because Britain could not take another economic hit with the EU inevitably retaliating if Britain reneged on what it signed in the Johnson-Lord Frosty Frost era. So these are the seeds. And then there came the briefing from the Sunday, to the Sunday Times uh, that the government was looking at a kind of Swiss-style arrangement. My guess, it's only a guess, is this. When the um, sharp political team at the Sunday Times heard Jeremy Hunt in his Today programme interview talk about the need to negotiate freer trade arrangements. My guess is they contacted uh, Jeremy Hunt's advisers, explored what that would mean in practice, and in those conversations, one of these advisers raised the Swiss option as one way in which um, the whole thing could open up a bit more. And that then gave them the story, which they completely legitimately ran on that basis. And my guess is that is the kind of thing that happened rather than a deliberate kite-flying exercise from within the Treasury or Number 10, in which they were flying the Swiss option to see how it lands, because they would have known how it would land in today's modern Conservative Parliamentary Party. The evangelical figures of the ERG group uh, at Westminster run, in effect, the uh, governing party, uh, or certainly have a veto over a governing party doing anything sensible. There's a book to be done, and there will be many books from in 200 years' time on the dominance of this group of hard right wingers, uh, who might as well, frankly, they could have been in the Brexit party. Um, they some of the Tory voters are defecting to this new kind of Brexit manifestation party called Reform. And you've had Farage come up afterwards since the Sunday Times briefing, saying he might get right back into politics, even though. When he was advocating Britain leaving the European Union, he cited the Swiss model as one that Britain could adopt. These people are game players, politics as a game, looking for a chance to return to the stage. Um, But they do so in ways that intimidate the Conservative leadership. That has been the running theme. Cameron offered that referendum not because he discovered a uh, passion for direct democracy, 
but because he was terrified more MPs would defect to what was then the UKIP party and became the Brexit party. Johnson went for the hard Brexit, not because he thought through all the implications, but because he felt he had to stop the Brexit party. On it goes. The capacity of a small group of uh, untalented people to have a veto over policy. And while they have that strength within the Conservative Party, that Swiss model will not happen. And indeed, the denial that anything sensible like that is being contemplated was immediate and pretty close to unequivocal. You had Lord Frosty Frost out, the hot husper of that guy, unelected, has caused economic chaos to Britain. Um, and there he said, oh, someone's trying to improve on my deal, which he himself has reneged on and you know, says has to be renegotiated with reference to Northern Ireland. Anyway, but there they are. They have this voice and a veto to Sunak and Hunt doing anything sensible. And so they won't be able to do it. But it is interesting that it was raised, even perhaps unintentionally appearing as a front page story in the Sunday Times, because this is why we are starting to see the silence over Brexit end. Economic growth has become the prevailing theme in British politics for completely understandable reasons. Without economic growth, and we haven't had much of it in this country for many, many years, nothing is possible. You will not get a decent, well-funded NHS, especially with the juvenile tax and spend debate we have in Britain before elections, where all tax rises are seen as sinful and public spending seen as a profligate waste. You see the narrowing of opportunity for a quality of life that most other European countries enjoy, you know, as that election debate takes shape. Uh, Oh, no, we're not going to raise taxes. In fact, it's the other side that have raised taxes. These Tories have raised taxes. We're not going to raise them. Don't vote Labour. Their tax bombshells are hidden away, but they're going to destroy your income. On it goes. And therefore, the only route for Britain to have remotely civilised public services to compare with Northern Europe, Germany, to some extent France, Spain even, is if Britain grows its economy, because then you get revenues, which means that you don't have to put up taxes so steeply to pay for public services. And that was always the problem, by the way, with Brexit. With all independent forecasters projecting a drop in GDP of 4% through Brexit, not least uh, Frosty's Brexit, which was, I think many thought would be even more ruinous, growth becomes even more challenging. In a country which has had low productivity for many years, it's a largely low-skilled workforce, and famously after the pandemic, quite a few people have pulled out altogether who would normally have carried on for a bit longer working. But then you throw in, this is the big difference, I mean other countries have had the pandemic. Other countries are reeling from the war in Ukraine, in some ways are more directly victims than Britain. You know, Germany, dependent on Russian gas, for example. But it's Britain. So it was the same with the financial crisis. Britain hit more. And the distinctive thing now uh, with Britain is Brexit and Lord Frosty Frost deal in particular. And so if you want growth, you have to address 
that elephant in the room. I suspect Jeremy Hunt knows that, the Treasury knows that, and there's probably quite a big bit of Rishi Sunak, having spent the last few years trying to navigate the dark nightmare of the British economy, knows that too. But the politics of the Conservative Party and its newspapers make any attempt to address it impossible. Now, Labour are in a different position. They obviously need to sit back and just let this one, you know, play out in the Tory party because that's to their electoral advantage. But somehow or other, Keir Starmer needs to leave the space open for him to move closer to that single market and ideally join it because he has made rightly growth his objective. And for sure, Labour's more ambitious goals to make public services more civilised and better than we've endured in recent years needs investment. It won't just be done by that magic wand called reform. I saw George Osborne on Andrew Neil's show saying, what's happened to reform? But he should know when he was in uh, the coalition, reform, in inverted commas, cost a heck of a lot of money. The fracturing of the NHS as uh, advanced by that coalition needed so many more intermediate bodies and agencies to sort it all out. It was actually quite expensive, didn't save a halfpenny. So reform is this kind of neat word which actually raises many questions. It is not a alternative. I mean, reforms are required. There's a big debate to be had, and hopefully at some point there will be a grown-up debate to be had on what form those reforms should take. But they're not an alternative, a magic wand, which means Britain uniquely can have great public services without spending as much as the rest of Europe, say. Or indeed America, which spends a fortune inefficiency, inefficiently on health. Sorting out Brexit is a route towards higher growth. And it won't happen under this government, and therefore this government will not secure uh, the sort of higher growth it needs to claim to have addressed some of the problems with the British economy by the time of the election. Brexit, which was one of the defining themes of this long, long, wild period of Conservative rule, will be, in the end, the cause of its fall. I've got no doubt about that, because you will have the grown-ups in this government knowing that it needs sorting, but their party won't allow them to do it, and they'll have to pretend all is fine when it is not. And some uh, in the electorate will want to hear that all is fine and won't be responsive, but polls suggest others have begun to recognise that it's a catastrophe. So don't get, I know a lot of you rightly are worked up about Brexit and this dark nightmare that um, we are living through. Don't get too excited by that front page headline. But as I say, there are seeds being sown. And I think they will continue to grow, actually, those seeds. But it won't be until after the election and a change of government, if that is what does happen. There's an episode three podcasts ago, I think, where I explain the narrow route to a Sunak win. But by the way, even if that happens, and it's unlikely, but it might, he will then have the strength to be grown up about 
Brexit and take them on. If he if he pulls off a victory from this context, he will be a mighty prime minister and he will make moves to sort this frost Brexit out. And I call it the frost Brexit because he's the only one who really knew what was in it. Frost himself has said his deputy, who was Penny Morden, uh, didn't follow it. And uh, people tell me... Uh, uh, no idea whether it's true, but I suspect it is that Boris Johnson, there's no way he read the whole detailed thing that uh, Frost negotiated. And I bet most of the cabinet didn't. They were summoned on Zoom when Frost finished his negotiation. I think it was on Christmas Eve and told about it and they all cheered and that was it. House of Commons met for a day between Christmas and New Year, all voted for it virtually with a few exceptions. And that was it. I mean, the whole thing has been bonkers. But the seeds are being sown. So with that observation, over to your, as ever, brilliant, and in some cases, related questions. So before we get going with the questions, just a reminder again of the email, steverick14 at iCloud.com. And while we're on that kind of logistical thing, uh, if you could leave a review of the podcast, if you listen on the iPhone, you know, that I, the podcast kind of thing, uh, it's very easy to leave a review, but only do if you leave a good review. And that means more people can get hold of this. As I said before, I don't understand why, but I'm absolutely told by the brilliant podmasters who uh, produce and get this podcast out to you all uh, that that's the case. So please, if you like it, leave a review. If you don't, don't bother. Don't bother. Anyway, uh, thank you. And again, steverick14 at iCloud.com. And here we go. Uh, so this is related to what I've just been talking about. So I'm going to um, I've got my glasses on at the moment, so I'm going to take them off to read um, your questions. Uh, Andy Hall says, uh, "Oh, we I really enjoyed the electoral reform special. Thank you, Andy." As I said before, I had to do a bonus podcast last week because I got so many uh, questions. Anyway, my question: uh, with an apparent conspiracy of silence over the effects of Brexit between the two main parties, can the Liberal Democrats mobilise a credible anti-Brexit vote in the next election? There's a related one, or very, very similar, from Andrew Wilkie, who says, I'm struck by how little the Lib, Lib Dems are benefiting from the Tory chaos. All the polling shows Labour uh, doing strongly and, and being consistently ahead, and the Lib Dems in single figures. I also note that they've been as quiet as Labour have on the elephant in the room that's the EU single market Brexit. Do you think they'll go into the next election cheerleading loudly for the uh, UK to rejoin the EU or at least fix the trade situation? And what do you think that would do to their electoral podcasts? So there we are, two two related questions. The reason they're not doing well is that when Labour get a very big poll lead, it really becomes a battle between the two bigger parties as to who will form the government. And therefore, there's much greater focus. There's, there's always a focus on the governing party. When Labour looked as if they were going to be all over the place and not win, there wasn't that much focus. Now they are seen as the alternative government. And therefore, there's a huge focus on them and rightly so. For the Lib Dems, that presents uh, big problems. And the model for dealing with it is what Paddy Ashdown did in um, the build-up 
to 97, where in some respects uh, he was uh, to the left of New Labour. They advocated, I think they called it a penny on income tax to pay for public spending. Now, they were lucky because Paul suggested voters literally thought they were arguing for them to pay 1p, literally 1p more to sort out public services. But they dared to argue, which uh, Labour didn't then, uh, that if you wanted better public services, you would have to pay for it. And obviously, there was the sort of whole constitutional reform rapport with Blair pre-election fell apart fairly quickly post-election. So yeah, it seems to me this is a huge gap for the Lib Dems to do now, a 97 style, uh, be bolder than Labour on the issue of Brexit. And it will reach a good constituency and hold them in good stead. I've got absolutely no doubt they will do it. I don't know whether they'll advocate rejoining altogether, but I think it makes absolute sense to them for them to say, I don't know whether they are, by the way, but it makes absolute sense for them to say we should rejoin the single market and probably the customs union, Swiss style or um, Norway style or whatever. It's just the gap in the political market arising partly from uh, Labour timidity and, I say, the kind of dominance on this issue of the ERG group and the Tory party. So I think they will do that and I think it will help them. They need to be uh, distinctive and relevant and there's a kind of relevance to addressing that elephant in the room. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Jeff Strange, who I think now is based in Dublin. As the DUP and the Tories try to figure out how to square the circle that's Brexit, the Republic of Ireland is set to be the leading growing economy in Europe. I didn't realise that. Whereas UK is bottom of the growth league. Growth across the whole of the island of Ireland is outstripping that of the UK, whereas the DUP are bent on pursuing some brand of unionist ideology that will scupper that for the north. If not the frosty protocol, then they'll find some other excuse to put a spanner in the works. The DUP really are the ERG of Northern Ireland, kind of for all sorts of contorted reasons advocating things that will harm Northern Ireland in the same way that the ERG group are vetoing things that would help the UK economy as a whole. So Jeff says, with every day that passes where the North benefits from trade within the single market, this commercial unified Ireland will begin to echo in the politics. Money talks. I doubt there will be a point in time when Westminster risks trade hostility with the EU by massive alterations to the protocol. Maybe Westminster are hoping that the DUP will fade away. Well, they won't fade away, Jeff. Oh, he's staying in West Cork. Wow. Look forward to seeing you there. The DUP won't fade away. They do have an influence. Uh, It's not as big as the ERG, but just look at the way Theresa May, who in retrospect was pursuing a much more sensible Brexit than any of us dared to contemplate at the time, but she was. But the DUP, she had to see them all the time. And, oh, you know. And it's it is always worth remembering. A majority of people in Northern Ireland voted for Remain. So, But they won't go away. But I, I do think that massive alterations to the protocol, Sunak won't want to do it unilaterally. He'll want to get some sort of negotiated deal with the EU. He wants a good relationship with Biden. And he doesn't want a trade war with the European Union. He can't afford it. The British economy is on its knees anyway, without making it even worse. Uh, Thank you, Jeff, there in West Cork. A pint of Guinness, I hope, as you're listening. 
Noah Keat, I hope you're having a good weekend. We well, the weekend's over, actually, Noah, as I speak. Um, just been watching Rishi Sunak at the CBI to date when I'm recording this. Rishi Sunak, by the way, absolutely denying any Swiss-style uh, arrangement, uh, even though the CBI would want it. What mad times we're living through. Anyway, with rumours of Twitter's collapse appearing imminent, I wondered if you could reflect on how the political sphere may change, evolve or improve without the platform's existence. Will discussion simply migrate to Mastodon, the successor to Twitter? How could it compare to political debate before the age of social media? I don't know, every time you go on Twitter, you see people saying this will be my last tweet and all the rest of it. Then, a day later, you go on and the same people are still tweeting. I don't know, Noah. I don't know whether it's going to end. I suspect Twitter is going to keep going. Uh, and if it doesn't, there will be a new Twitter, whether it's Mastodon or something else. It's very odd. People keep on tweeting, I hate Twitter. It's awful. And then, as I say, you go in the next day and they're tweeting. These very people who say it's awful. I like it. I'm I'm hooked on it. I, I really hope it, it survives in some shape or form. Um, because... Of course, it gets vile at times, but you just, you just don't, you don't engage with the vile, mad stuff. You know, you just do what you want to do and say. And I, I think it, I, I'm, I'm dangerously hooked. I bet a lot of you are, and I suspect it will continue. I mean, God knows what Elon Musk will be doing with it, and if he wrecks it, it will go somewhere else. But I think its form will continue, and therefore, incidentally, in terms of politics, this hyped up frenzy of a mood I think is a sort of permanent one and you just have to be strong in politics there aren't many strong politicians around to keep your distance from the hyped up frenzy of Twitter and the rest of us can judge what is frenzy and what isn't but we can do it in a more relaxed way because our entire future isn't dependent on it 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 has hyped up the frenzy of politics and I think that will continue there's a a special to be done on social media and politics. I know it's analysed quite a lot, but um, yeah, yeah. Let, let's see what happens now with Twitter. Now, we're going to do this as a little theme because this is really interesting. Then I'll, I'll shut up and leave you all to bake your bread and run and things. But this is... Now, a couple of weeks ago, our French correspondent, Dominique Jules, talked about provision in her French commune, and it sounded great. And I said, well, who pays for this to, on the podcast in response to Dominica? And so here is the details. And then compare and contrast with Britain, uh, which we will do with a couple of other emails I've had from the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. So this is Dominica on the French commune. In answer to your question last week regarding how French communes are financed, the short answer is a combination of local taxes and state finance. As with all budgets, it's of course a question of expenditure and receipts. Local taxes are calculated according to a combination of the estimated rental value of each property and a levy agreed. In terms of state finance, as a result of decentralisation, the responsibility for the provision of creches, kindergarten and primary schools was shifted from state to communes. The state therefore now finances such building and maintenance projects via grants to the commune. Communes have the right to borrow from banks to finance projects. Communes also benefit from numerous possible EU finance projects. Yeah, tell us about it in Brexit Britain. This is a simplified version. The government website on the topic runs to many pages. Well, we'll keep to your 
simplified version, Dominica. So there we are. It's uh, financed through various means, but locally administered. Now, Neil Gwynn writes, your latest podcast uh, with your, in which your French correspondent mentioned the public infrastructure her community was getting. I have personal experience of this. I'm a community councillor, a Scottish equivalent of a parish councillor, for a small village of 1,500 people, and we're twinned with a French village near Lille. We have a budget of £200 a year, and other than chasing our county council or Scottish government, we have little agency over what we do, other than being able to comment on planning applications. Effectively, we're a talking shop. We've no control over the public realm, and obviously there's little money at local authority level to do anything. The village we are twinned with has a budget of a million euros, which they control themselves. For new house building, they get financial support to offset the impacts if they support the national plan. They have a village library, bakery, community centre, lit sport pitches and changing rooms. Their public space is just so much better than ours. Yeah, it is really depressing this. Um, When is there going to be a celebration of the public realm, not for outro in Britain, like, uh, you know, so, so there we have it, it you know, this uh, equivalent of the commune in Scotland, but it's the same in England and the rest of the UK, 200 quid a year. For selfish reasons, we should all want the equivalent of Dominica's commune. Um, and that's it's not altruism. Public spending is often portrayed in that phrase tax burden, as if we're making terrible sacrifices for someone else. But it's surely for selfish reasons in Britain we want better public space and quality of life and not just money in a bank account through tax cuts. Anyway, Venetia Kane also writes, uh, participation in local elections in France is much greater than here because people identify with their local councils much more than we do. Since every commune, whether it consists of 150 inhabitants or a few million, has a mayor who can be re-elected to office for years and years, it's much easier to be interested in and know what their councils are up to. French people feel closer to their various councils than we do. I think the mayoral system is um, still being underused. I know there's talk in both Tory and Labour circles of expanding it. But a really effective model, I've talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating, is uh, what happened in London when a mayor was put in. It took some time because New Labour was so cautious. But over time, the mayor in particular became directly associated with the provision of public transport. And it had to get better for the mayor to get re-elected. And that form of accountability, and under the first London mayor, Ken Livingston, he brought in the best people from America to sort out the underground. He put in the congestion charge to pay for improvements directly in public transport, and it was transformative. And for once in Britain, the lines of accountability were clear too, uh, compared to, you know, if, if you look at the lines of accountability in the NHS or the BBC or you know, any any of these other things, it's just impossible to see who's responsible for who. But that one works. And uh, uh, it's interesting, Venetia, that I, I didn't realise that even small communes in France have uh, their own elected mayor. Thank you very much. So there we are. There's a little theme. I want us to reflect more on that. Any more info you've got, uh, It's I think it's really interesting.
about local provision and how best it is done and how you aim for high quality. Andrew Kitchen says Labour, I think, can knit a narrative together about a green future for energy and investment in technology, shades of 1964. But they'll have to be smart and consistent. This is in light of the autumn statement with very tough public spending limits proposed for after the election, partly as a trap for Labour. They also now need to talk about a grown-up relationship with Europe. I think the electorate are ready for that. I think those, Andrew, outline some of the challenges. Thank you very much. Joe Ruffles reflects, yeah, of course. I was going to mention this uh, in my reflections. Another straw in the wind another seed being sown, was George Eustace, who's always been a Brexit supporter, talking about the Australian trade deal uh, that uh, Truss negotiated as being uh, poor for Britain, which was obvious at the time for those who bothered to look and the protests from the farmers and so on. Johnson held it's a great triumph, but again, he wouldn't have read it. and She did it just to advance her own interests. George Eustace told the truth, but uh, Joe says, he contrasts George Eustace saying it after he had been kicked out of the government. And he says, what a contrast uh, to the Iraq war where Robin Cook resigned and gave a brilliant speech in the Commons against the war on its eve. I realise that, this is Joe, I realise that mendacity about a trade deal isn't quite the same thing as going to war on false pretenses, but it's still significant. Do we have collective responsibility in anything more than name only? Or is this sort of mendacity par for the course with resignations like Robin Cook's exceptions that prove the rule? Good question. It is the exception that proves the rule. Robin Cook was very brave doing that. He knew Blair would never forgive him. He had been demoted. He was a leader of the House when he resigned. He had been demoted from being a Foreign Secretary because I think Blair suspected something precisely like uh, the war in Iraq was going to happen at some point under Bush. And he knew Cook would be a problematic Foreign Secretary in that context. Um, So uh, that was the exception. Uh, Most cling on and rarely resign out of principle. There will have been two or three, at least, cabinet ministers who knew Johnson's and Frost's Brexit route was going to damage the economy of Britain very badly, and they stayed on. So, uh, yeah, Cook, it, it really does stand out. And he was viewed with disdain by the rest of the cabinet at the time. But many of them now acknowledge that Cook was right, and they were all wrong. Brian Hunt, I was watching your Reflections video concerning Michael Hesertine as a Prime Minister we never had. Yeah, you can get a book now, Brian, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, of which there's a chapter on Michael Hesertine. During the programme, you stated the line often repeated over the years that he who wields the knife never gets to wear the crown. Has Rishi Sunak now blown this view apart? Well, Brian, two things. It was always a myth, actually. Uh, And everyone used to cite Michael Hesertine to prove that those who are the assassin, never get to uh, wear the crown. But Thatcher really, although it was in opposition, assassinated Heath. She stood against Heath and she won. So it was always slightly mythological. But the other reason why I think it's mythological in this case is that Sunak was not the assassin. Johnson was doomed by when it emerged that he had been lying again, this time over what he knew about old Pincher. Uh, and his previous misconducts or allegations of misconduct. Ministers were planning to go left, right and centre, and Javid had already gone. Uh, 
uh, when Sunak went. And Sunak, if anything, had been restrained and not going earlier. Um, so I, don't, I, I know there's a perception that he was the assassin. And also he lost the election. Actually, we're in the weird situation that he lost and is now prime minister. And he lost partly because there was a perception that he was the assassin. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, Jenny Seaburr writes, uh, pointing out a, a report by Paul Whiteley at the University of Essex, uh, based on 70 years of data, suggesting the Conservatives are going to suffer a big defeat at the next election. If right, discussions about Starmer's strategy may be irrelevant. Yeah, Jenny, I think, the, but the assumption that the Conservatives are going to lose is quite a dangerous one, uh, certainly in England, uh, which has a tendency to vote Conservative most of the time. So, and also what Keir does in terms of now, obviously, victory without losing is you get no power. But to win, wholly constrained by what you've said in opposition in order to win, makes governing very difficult, especially in the context of recent times, uh, where a huge amount needs to be done. This is not 97. Uh, where Labour inherited a growing economy uh, and quite a few tough tax decisions had been made by the Tories. This is a very different set of challenges. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, Alan Caldwell-Jones says, I recently travelled from Stratford to Berlin by train, having collected a selection of passport stamps, which would make Lord Frosty Frost proud. Yeah. The journey gave me time to reflect and listen back to some old rock and roll politics podcasts. What a great way of spending a journey. In particular, your podcast from 21st of November 2021, Blimey, which featured the government's weird plans for rail infrastructure. Long-distance trains in Europe, particularly German DB ICE trains, are super-fast, smooth, clean and affordable. My ticket from Brussels to Berlin via Cologne cost €22 first class. Wow. God, what a contrast, eh? I've got to get to Newcastle this weekend. No idea how to do it. Train strikes and whether they were running engineering works. You have to take out a mortgage to buy the train ticket. I mean, what a mess. By contrast, my journey in the UK, here we go, you see, this is Alan, was undertaken on an overcrowded, filthy, slow train which had no working lights and bumped along in total darkness. Do you think the UK will ever improve the provision and quality of transport infrastructure? HS2 is welcome, although the route is limited and appetite for further investment seems muted. I kind of despair about public transport and, it, and, and it's a sort of, it's become a coincident theme really of this podcast, hasn't it? Public provision and how for selfish reasons we should all want it to be better selfishly we don't want to queue for a year plus 
for an operation. Selfishly, we would like to be able to get trains and enjoy the experience and celebrate their reliability and affordability. This needs uh, organisation and investment and a new structure. The chaotic, fragmented structure of Britain's railways is part of the problem, not the solution. And, um, yeah, the contrast with Germany, you can buy a monthly ticket now, can't you? And it's very cheap. I cited it the other day. I am pessimistic about when we ever get that quality of transport and the quality of provision as highlighted in Dominica's French Commune and so on. But as I say, if it's framed as tax burdens and altruistic kind of, oh, it's, yeah, the public's paying this for other people, not us. Britain is always going to be this, well, I think I said last week, it's closer to a, a poor state in the United States where public provision isn't a great focus, um, rather than a model of quality of life and excellent public provision, which, as I say, entirely selfishly, I've yearned for all my life. Oh, I'm still youthful, so I dare to hope we will live this life at some point. But in the meantime, we've all just got to hang in on there together. Hang in there, hang on in there together. And we kind of in our cooperative have quality of life through other means. We have to do ourselves, don't we? The running and the baking of bread, the drinking of whiskey, the walking up Arthur's seat, the kind of, you know, walking in the Australian outback listening to the podcast. This is how we get it you know, or if you're in Australia, not here, uh, you get it through walking in Australia. But anyway, um, this debate about better public provision, I think should be a running theme uh, for us lot uh, in the build up to the next election and beyond, uh, because we want it and we want it now. Anyway, look, thanks so much for listening. Uh, it's and, and again, thank you for all the many questions about electoral reform. We will return to that at some point. Um, and yeah, look, have a great week. There will be many twists and turns. Uh, some of you might be watching the football, but hopefully some of you will be playing football whilst listening to the podcast. Uh, so if you could leave a, a review, only if it's a good one, that would be fantastic. And see some of you uh, in um, Brighton or London live when we get together uh, next month on the 5th and the 12th. And see all of you next week when we gather once again to make sense of it all. Thank you 